right, so great to see you all this morning. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us online today. Mark's the halfway point uh, through our series through the New Testament letter of 1 Peter. And I've been so encouraged by the way so many of you are responding uh, to what, uh, first, what Peter has written in this letter. I've loved hearing about the kind of experiences that people are having in small groups as Small groups are circling up, studying this uh, together. I think it's been awesome. You guys have, a number of you have asked me some really great questions, which has made me think that maybe I needed to do a little bit better job of letting you know about a resource that we have. I hate anything that feels like self-promotion. This is going to feel like that a little bit. Just I need a little grace from you. Uh, but we have a podcast. It's called Church's Message. You can find it wherever uh, you listen uh, to podcasts. And uh, each week, Pastor Sfeia and I, we record an episode, and it's all about keeping the conversation going from the sermon. We're covering details and information and questions that I don't have time to get to in one single uh, sermon. And that episode drops every Wednesday morning. And so uh, after today's message and the passage we're going to go through today, I think you're probably going to want to listen to the podcast because what we're talking about today is going to feel like we're dancing through a minefield together. And some of, some of the explosive topics that we're going to cover are the topics of politics, nationalism, slavery, and gender roles. That's this week and next week. So buckle up, Buttercup. Here we go. And I think I just owe it to you to be up front. And to let you know that it is not our goal to do our best to avoid stepping on landmines. We're going to step on them on purpose. Let me tell you why that doesn't scare me and why I don't think it should scare you. Because when we know who we are in Jesus and everything that we have in Christ and how secure that is because we're held by him, well, there's nothing that we can't face. There's nothing that we can't talk about together. And even in subjects that feel like they might be a bit explosive, I think we're going to discover they're nothing more than intersection points between real life and our identities in Christ. So I want to remind us of this. This has been our anthem throughout the series. Let your identity drive your activity. All the courage we need for this, all the clarity we need for this comes from understanding who we are in Christ if we have chosen to follow him. And so we're going to start today with a verse that we've hit a number of times uh, throughout this series. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10 says this, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received what? Mercy. mercy. And we're going we're to start off by emphasizing what he said right here, there's something about receiving mercy that redefines us. It gives us a new identity that goes all the way down to our bones. We should be people of mercy. Come on now. Does our country need a little bit more mercy? Is there anybody in Rochester that could use more mercy? Is there anybody at your school, anybody where you work, where you hang out that could use a little bit more mercy? Has there anybody who could use more mercy at home? Are you like, no, I'm good, I got enough. Who are going to be the people that carry mercy? Will it be you? Will it be us? And as you think about that, let me ask a question from a different direction. What does it take to talk us out of being people who give mercy? 
So you think about that. Let me put this verse back on the screen. This is a verse that I've asked you to memorize because it's so important to know who we are in Christ. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The moment that you become a follower of Jesus, instantaneously, when you give your allegiance to Jesus, these descriptions become true of you. These are not things that we achieve over time through religious behavior. If we're good enough, it's not something that we're promoted into. These are not Christian merit badges that we collect. The moment that you trust in Jesus, you give your allegiance to him instantaneously. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So there's one of these that I've asked to kind of draw our attention to that I've highlighted. We are a holy nation. And the reason I want to highlight this is because if we misunderstand this, I think it'll cause us to misunderstand the other things that are true about us. And if we misunderstand this, it will corrode away our mercy like an acid. So would you write this down? Jesus made us into a holy nation, not makers of holy nations. Jesus made us into a holy nation, not makers of holy nations. Over the past couple of years, Christian nationalism has gotten a lot of airtime. Christian nationalism has gotten a lot of attention, and it's nothing new. It's a movement that really started and has been growing since the mid-1970s. And the leaders, the leaders of Christian nationalism want to deceive us. They want us to think it's nothing more than patriotism or love of country. Their true motive is to get power, to get power so that they can impose their version of Christianity on the whole country by force of law. Now, this has been attempted before in human history, and every time that it's been attempted, it always leads to that country becoming less merciful and less Christian. Jesus' goal is not to create Christian nations. His purpose is a lot better than that. He is the king, and he's brought his kingdom. And his kingdom will be fully realized when he returns. But he is the king, and he has brought his kingdom, and he is inviting people from all nations to come and be a part of his kingdom. And we are a holy nation. We are part of that kingdom, and we are royal priests. That means we represent the king. And our responsibility is to represent the king and invite people into the kingdom. Represent the king and invite people into the kingdom. Notice what Peter says next. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. If you are a follower of Jesus, you're chosen, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, you're God's special possession. That's true of you. But what are we in context to where we are right now? Foreigners and exiles. And it may not be the way that people in your neighborhood see you or the people where you work see you, but this is the disposition by which we should see ourselves. We are followers of Jesus. Our primary citizenship is not in the country where we were born. If we are followers of Jesus, our primary citizenship is not with the country that gave us a passport or a visa. Our primary citizenship is in Jesus's kingdom. And that redefines us And it reframes for us how we should live and how we should engage with the world around us. 
Karen Jobes is a, just a brilliant biblical scholar. I want to share with you how she summarizes this point from Peter. She says, Peter conceptualizes the relationship of Christians to society as that of visiting strangers or resident aliens. We should be people who appreciate, respect, and value their host land, but nevertheless maintain their own distinct identity within it. We should love our country and our communities. Now, our love for our country should not be restricted to our country alone, but it should be fully expressed for our country and the communities and the society in which we live. And being primarily citizens of Jesus' kingdom and living as foreigners and exiles doesn't mean that we hide away and shrink back. No, we engage as representatives of the king. And we bring love and we bring mercy with us and we bring goodness with us. We bring the gospel and we let it work through us and, and the things that we do and how we talk. Where do you see, where do you see the need for love, mercy, and goodness in the world today? Would you move towards that and bring the gospel with you? If you see that the legal system needs love, mercy, and goodness, go be the best lawyer you can be. Go be the best judge you can be. Be a fantastic police officer and let the gospel work through you from the inside out in that institution. If you think our government could use some love, mercy, and goodness, go run for city council, be a professional politician, be a state legislator, I don't know, be a dog catcher, do whatever you gotta do. You know, run for governor, be the best president that you could be if you could be president, and let the gospel work through you from the inside out in that institution. If you think our education system could use some love, mercy, and goodness, Join the school board, be a teacher, be a principal, be a teacher's aide, be a parent volunteer, be a coach, be whatever, and engage and let the gospel work through you from the inside out. If healthcare could use love, mercy, and goodness, be the best doctor, the best nurse, the best administrator, the best researcher, the best chaplain, you know how to be and engage and let the gospel work through you from the inside out in that institution. But in your apartment building, in your neighborhood, at your job, at your school, where you work out, your sports leagues, would you see yourself as a royal priest? Or would you represent the king in every sphere of life, in every arena of life where you have access? Over the past year, I've been trying to say this a lot. This is an intentional area of focus for our congregation. Leadership is a destination of discipleship. Leadership is a destination of discipleship. We have been given a precious and great responsibility by our king to represent him and to invite others into the kingdom. The question is, will we take responsibility for that? Put this verse back on the screen. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, and then he says this, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. War, I think, is a very helpful metaphor but it's a weighty metaphor. And if we misunderstand it, we could create some damage that we don't want to create, that we don't want to cause. Who is our enemy? Is our enemy a what or a who? I know I haven't been reading a lot of Dr. Seuss, but I'm asking you. Is our enemy a what or a who? What is it? Our sinful desires. We're not, it's not, we're not fighting people, we're fighting our own sinful desires. We are not in a culture war. If other people want to fight a culture war, let them have at it. There's no room for it. There's no place for it in the church. 
Jesus has not drafted us into a fight against people. He has drafted us into a fight, and it's against our own sin, our own evil desires that would draw us away from him and the life that he's given us. Here's just the re- I'll tell you the reality of my sin, and I bet you would say it's the reality of your sin too. It's a violation of love every time, and it is treason. Sin is treason against love for God and God's love for us. Every sin is treason against love for people and people's love for us. That's why it's so important. We're not supposed to be, we're not called into some war against the actual sins or the perceived sins of some group out there or culture. Jesus has drafted us into a fight against our own sin. So would you write this down? We're not in a war, but there's a war in us. We're not in a war, but there is a war in us. And the war is not against people. It's against our own sinful desires. Now, as you're thinking about that, I'm curious, how many of you have ever heard of this before? Love the sin or hate the sin? Who's ever been told that before? All right. Whoever came, I grew up with this. This was like the anthem that we lived by. And whoever came up with this, I'm sure their intentions were good, and I'm sure they had no idea that the impact would be so bad. And instead of people feeling loved, it actually resulted in people being harmed. And the problem with this sentiment is that it whiffs on Scripture. The problem with this sentiment is it just gets the Bible wrong. If Peter were here, I think he would say this, love the sinner, hate your own sin, there, I fixed it for you, Peter. (laughs) Yeah, love the sinner, hate our own sin. People who see themselves as watchmen, people who see themselves as watchmen on the lookout for the sins of other people, those are not merciful people. It's the people who are aware of their own sin. It's the people who grieve their own treason against the love of God, their own treason against love for people. It's people who are aware of that and who grieve that. Those are the ones who understand how undeserving of mercy they are. And those tend to be the kind of people who hand out mercy like candy. They're the ones who are generous with mercy. Which kind of people do we want to be? This is why it's so important for us to know and remember who we are in Christ. Next thing Peter says is this, live such good lives among the pagans. And this isn't a bad word. I understand some people might view that as an insult. It actually comes from the Greek word ethnason, which is a version of ethnos, and it just means the people. It just means nations. Live such good lives among all people that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. When Jesus returns, that they're worshiping. I said earlier, we're gonna step on some landmines, right? You guys remember when I said that? I warned you. What I'm gonna say next for some of us might feel like stepping on a landmine. Our purpose isn't to get people to agree with us, but to worship with us. Our purpose is not to get people to agree with us, but to worship with us. Now, if you follow Jesus and you happily submit to Jesus and to what he says, and I do the same thing. I follow Jesus and I happily submit to to Jesus and to what he says. Over time, you know what we're gonna experience? We're gonna experience a greater sense of the unity that we have in Jesus. And over time, as you're following Jesus and I'm following Jesus and we're all aligning with Jesus, we're gonna discover that we're agreeing more and more and that is a beautiful thing. 
The counterfeit of that, the counterfeit of that looks like it, but it's not the same thing. And the sobering truth about counterfeits is that counterfeits, they look like the real thing, but they're worthless. The counterfeit version of what I just described is only worshiping with people who agree with us. The counterfeit version is only letting people in, only allowing people to worship with us who look like us, who think like us, who act like us. That's a counterfeit. Remember who Peter was writing to. He's writing to men and women who are being persecuted for their faith. He's writing to men and women who are misunderstood by their communities. Their communities are hostile to them and their faith. They see them as a threat. And their communities are convinced they're wrong and they even accuse them at times of doing wrong. And notice Peter did not say, live such good lives that they go, oh my goodness, I'm sorry, you were right after all. He said, live your lives in such a way that not that people become convinced of how right you are, but that become convinced of how good Jesus is. And one day Jesus is going to return. And when he returns, what would it mean to you? What would it mean to you if there are people who celebrate Jesus, who love Jesus, who worship Jesus, and the reason that they want to worship Jesus is because they were inspired to do so because of how you represented him. What would that mean to you? The goal, the whole point, is for people to know and want to worship Jesus. The goal isn't for them to agree with us. Now, if anyone feels uncomfortable with that, I'm not saying that truth isn't important. Truth is massively important. I'm not saying that doctrine isn't important. Yeah, it's important. It's very important. As a matter of fact, our first value, we have a number of values. Our first value that we list, list off as a church is take truth seriously. We'll follow it wherever it leads. Truth is incredibly important. If there's anybody here today or you're watching online and you're kind of kicking the tires on Christianity, you're trying to figure out Jesus, you're trying to figure out Christians, what we're talking about today is like a family conversation. I'm glad you're here and that you're listening. But this is a time for some real talk. Real talk is this. There are too many people who think what we're really about is trying to get them to vote like us. There are too many people who believe that what we're really about is just trying to collect as much power as we can. There are too many people who believe the thing that's most important to us is who sits on the Supreme Court. And that misperception of what churches are about or that misperception of what the gospel is all about, that may not be your fault and it's probably not your fault. And it may not be my fault, but talking about fault is boring and it's a waste of time. I'm more interested in talking about responsibility. We are a royal priesthood. And this is what that means. Experiencing what we are like should be experiencing what Jesus is like. Experiencing what we are like should be experiencing what Jesus is like. We want people to see him and behold him and worship him. And I think we're gonna be okay if people don't always agree with us. Like, I think I can be okay if people don't agree with me. My wife's not here. If she was here, she might, she might say I'm wrong. But theoretically, I can be okay if people don't agree with me. I am parenting my third kid through the teenage years. I've got lots of experience with humans not agreeing with me. <laughs> I can live with people not agreeing with me. This is what I can't live with. I can't live with people not knowing Jesus. I can't live with people not knowing how much he loves them. 
I can't live with people not worshiping Jesus. At our church, we are going to happily, I think every church should do this, but I'll talk about our church. We're gonna happily place ourselves underneath the authority of Scripture. And if doing so means that we're out of step with culture, okay, I can live with that. We're gonna teach it as faithfully and as best as we know how to do. But the goal, the ultimate goal of all of it, is so that people behold and adore Jesus and wanna worship him. How does that sound? How does it sound we're gonna place ourselves underneath the authority of scripture and follow it? You guys good with that? Okay, you're agreeing before I read what comes next. (laughs) Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to the human authorities that you voted for. What, is that what it says? <laughs> Who loves this word, ain't it awesome? Submit yourself for the Lord's sake, what's this word? Every, every human authority, whether to the emperor as, to the, as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For whose will is it? For it's God's will that by us doing good, silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people. But don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Is that always easy? It's hard sometimes, isn't it? Maybe that's why Peter said, listen, there's a war in you. We've got to make war against just the sin that's inside of us. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, Peter, the guy who wrote this, he was an eyewitness to Jesus being crucified by the decree of a Roman governor. He had friends who were killed. He went to the funerals of friends who were executed by those in political power. Peter himself would be executed by a Roman emperor. This was not abstract for him. These were not empty words for him. And they shouldn't be empty words for us either. But I want us to have the guts to be honest with ourselves. For too many followers of Jesus, for too many pastors, and for too many churches, All the events surrounding 2020 and beyond exposed that these were empty words for us. And I may not be talking about you, but collectively, the collective Christian witness across this country, for too many of us, these precious words were treated like empty words. The American church has a lot to learn from the global church. We have a lot to learn from Christians in China, a lot to learn from Christians in Afghanistan, a lot to learn from believers who live in countries that are hostile to our faith. And I think we would do well to adopt a position of humility, a posture of repentance, and take on the position of a learner instead of leaders on this one. Peter didn't say submit when you agree. He said, for the sake of Jesus, for his namesake, for his glory, for his purposes, 
submit to every human authority. So I want to give us a framework to think about this. Always submit to authorities. Sometimes subvert authorities. Rarely disobey authorities. Always submit. Sometimes subvert. Rarely disobey. It is possible. It's possible to submit to authorities and subvert them at the exact same time. I think an example of this from Christian history is back in the days of the early church in the Roman Empire, infanticide was legal. It was legal to kill baby girls because you didn't want a daughter and you wanted a son. And so it was the law. It was even culturally encouraged. You could leave your baby out on a, on a garbage dump to die of exposure. And congregations and Christians, they would go and they'd rescue these babies and they would nurture and love and raise uh, these girls into adulthood. They submitted to the law, but they were also subversive at the same time. It is possible to submit to authorities while also disobeying them. And maybe we forgot how to do that. And I think the person who's probably the best model of it and the one who did the best job explaining it was Dr. King, especially in his letter from a Birmingham jail. And so I want to read a portion of that to us, and we're going to let him teach us and disciple us right now. This comes from a letter from a Birmingham jail Dr. King wrote this, in no sense do I advocate evading or defying the law as would the rabid segregationists. That would lead to anarchy. One who breaks an unjust law must do so openly, lovingly, and with willingness to accept the penalty. Whenever we're in conflict with government leaders and obeying them leads us to a point where we're convinced that that would lead us to be, to be disobedient to Jesus, we're going to obey Jesus, we're going to disobey government leaders, but we're going to do so openly, lovingly, and willingly embrace the penalty. I submit that an individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice is in reality expressing the highest respect for law. Of course, there's nothing new. There's nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It was evident sublimely in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar on the ground that a higher moral law was at stake. It was practiced superbly by the early Christians who were willing to face hungry lions and the excruciating pain of chopping blocks rather than submit to certain unjust laws of the Roman Empire. When it comes to submitting to authorities, to submitting to government authorities, it requires a, a courageous mix of humility and wisdom. And every time that we're talking about this, I bet you have this, I bet you have a yeah but. I've got my own yeah buts. I don't know whose butt is bigger, your yeah but or my yeah but. But we got them. And whenever doing this, whenever taking this seriously and obeying the gospel and submitting to authorities means that we're going to personally experience injustice, everybody's got a yeah but. There is no bigger yeah but than slavery. And that's where Peter takes us next. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. If you've suffered because you're being mistreated, because of your allegiance to Jesus, that is commendable. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? 
But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called. This is what we're called to. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Now this doesn't feel like stepping on a landmine, does it? It feels more like a nuclear bomb just went off. Follow the example of Christ. Now I understand. I totally get it. It's understandable to me. Anybody who would want to read this passage through the lens of American history with chattel slavery and the transatlantic slave trade. Our task is to read our history and to look at all of life through the lens of Scripture. And it's probably helpful to note that Roman slavery is very different from slavery in the American South. Not to say that it was good, you just can't equate the two. Roman slavery, slavery was based on economic status, sometimes the outcome of war. It had nothing to do with race. Europeans owned African slaves, Africans owned European slaves. Slavery was rarely permanent. Most people were free by the age of 30. Slaves could own property, they could own businesses, they even own other slaves. Again, we're not saying that Roman slavery was great, we're just saying we can't equate it with what happened in American history. But we gotta be honest about our history. Too many people, too many pastors, too many Christians use this passage and others like that they intentionally misrepresented it and abused these passages to justify enslaving people, exploiting them, and abusing them. There's no excuse for it. It was wrong, and it was a tragic evil. When Peter is writing this letter, he's not writing about how Roman society should be structured. He does not have the time or the space to engage in why institutions are just and why institutions are unjust, and here's a philosophy on how to structure everything. He doesn't have time for that. What he's writing about is far more urgent. He is writing to men and women who are followers of Jesus who need to know what it means to follow Jesus in unjust situations, and many of them were slaves. So what do you do and what do you like when you are in an unjust situation and you don't have any power to do anything about it? What do you do and what are you like when people treat you as insignificant and your physical safety isn't just threatened, it's taken away and people treat you harshly and they hurt you and you don't have the power to do anything about it? What do you do? Peter's answer was straightforward and it wasn't for the faint of heart. He said, look to Jesus and follow his example. Look to Jesus and follow his example. Would you write this down? The gospel does not endorse subjugation and empowers submission, servanthood, and even suffering well. The gospel doesn't give a pass to any kind of subjugation, but it does empower us for submission, servanthood, and suffering well. Look to Jesus and follow his example. I do not mind telling you today, there's a little bit of me that feels a bit wobbly in preaching this. I can understand the text, but I haven't lived this text. I am a middle-aged, middle-class white guy who's the lead pastor in a prominent church in this community. There are prominent people in powerful positions that if I texted them right now, do you know what would happen? They would text me back. Sometimes they even ask me out for coffee. Have I ever been treated wrongly? Have I experienced injustice in my life? Yeah, but I have never experienced or lived this. So what I can do is I can study the text of Scripture and 
I can also listen to and learn from followers of Jesus who know injustice from the inside. I can study the text and I can listen to and learn from followers of Jesus who know what it's like to try to follow and be like Jesus, follow his example when they are being treated in ways that they didn't deserve. The people who are gonna understand this best are the people who also lived it. So we can study the text. We can be listeners to people who have lived it. But my responsibility and your responsibility ultimately is to look to Jesus. And Jesus came as a servant to serve our need. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. He willingly suffered so that we could be healed and so that we could be set free from sin and death. And Peter's saying, look to Jesus. Follow his example. And so if you are in Christ, if you've trusted Jesus, your identity is in Jesus. So let's think about this. My identity is in Jesus and he identified as a suffering servant. My identity is in Jesus. And he identified as a suffering servant. So this is what I want to do. I want to end by reading to you how Peter ended this passage. And what he wrote, he wasn't the first person to write it. He's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Isaiah 53 where the coming Messiah is described as a suffering servant. And it was a prediction about Jesus. And as I read this, I want you to think about ways and maybe that you have been wronged. I want you to think about areas where maybe you're afraid. I want you to think about areas where people are making decisions and you're, you're afraid of the decision that they're gonna make and you don't have the power to do anything about it. Peter wrote, to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We have a shepherd that is so good and trustworthy that we can trust him with our very souls. So whatever hurt you're in, whatever injustice you're experiencing, whatever thing that you're in and you don't deserve it and it should be better, would you look to Jesus? Would you follow him? Would you trust him? Whatever that thing is that you experience, would you see and behold how much he loves you and how much he grieves the reality of sin and brokenness and injustice, so much so that he gave himself for you and for me on the cross. And he proved that it was more than just a nice gesture. He proved the power of it by rising from the dead. We can trust 